My next guest is a U.S. Foreign Service officer. Please welcome Lisa Buzinas. Lisa, how's it going? Doing well. Thank you so much for inviting me. Great. No, no problem at all. Thank you for joining the podcast. My pleasure, so, RJ. Yep, yep. So let's jump right into it, Lisa. What do you do? What do I do? This is this is an interesting question because even after I've been in the Foreign Service now for over 13 years, my, my family still asks me the exact same question. <laughs> um, so before I talk about what I actually do in my uh -huh. job, I want to put some background and history of the State Department because I okay. think probably a lot of your listeners are not very familiar with the State Department right. or what we actually do for the U.S. So just to start off, as I mentioned, I work for the U.S. Department of State as a U.S. Foreign Service Officer, a.k.a. Mm -hmm. a U.S. Diplomat. So for your listeners, this is the history I'll give. So the State Department was created in 1789, and it's the oldest department of the executive branch of the U.S. government. Mm. Uh, so if you can understand, in 1789, it was just a few years after the United States became a country. Thomas Jefferson served as our first Secretary of State after concluding his assignment as the U.S. Minister to France. And the ministers back then, that's what we called them. Now, nowadays, we call them ambassadors. So basically, he was our first ambassador of France and then became our first secretary of state. And the reason that it's called the Department of State and not the Department of Foreign Affairs, like we have ministries of foreign affairs in other countries, right. is because when we first created the Department of State, the department actually had domestic duties as well. Many people probably don't know this, but the Department of State was in charge of issuing patents and copyrights mm. back then, in charge of the mint, mm. in charge of the census. Because, again, I mentioned that the Department of State is the oldest department of the executive branch. And therefore, we took on a lot of these duties before the Department of Commerce, the Department of the Interior, et cetera, were created. So just to give you some background, that's why we call it the Department of State. A lot of these functions obviously have transitioned off into other departments. But we still keep that the name Department of State because we do still actually have some domestic functions as well. Okay. So, so to get into what a U.S. diplomat does. Yeah. So the mission of a U.S. diplomat in the Foreign Service is to promote the peace of the United States and support the prosperity and protect American citizens while we're advancing U.S. interests abroad. Right. So Foreign Service officers serve at the State Department headquarters in Washington, D.C., and at 270 diplomatic missions overseas and in offices around the United States. So if you think about it, we have embassies in capitals in countries, and that sometimes if we have a large enough presence or a large enough relationship with the country, we'll also have consulates or consulates general in different cities across the country. So for instance, we have an embassy in Beijing, but then we also have a number of consulates general across the country in other cities like Shanghai and Guangzhou, et cetera. Right. So um, going into the different ways you can join the State Department and the work that we do, before I actually get into the work, let me just talk about the different hiring authorities. Yep. So yeah. I mentioned that I'm a foreign service officer. Uh, I'm a foreign service officer generalist. So I'll talk mainly about the work that generalists do. Um, okay. and, in, and generalists basically join the State Department in one of five career tracks. So there's right. the political track, economic, there's public diplomacy, consular, and then management, sure. and management slash administrative. Um, so aside from foreign service officer generalists, we also have foreign service officer specialists who specialize in a certain field like IT systems 
or budget or diplomatic secure, et cetera. And these people may have specialized skills in like, for instance, law enforcement or have a military background for the diplomatic security people who keep our embassies and our classified information safe, uh, protect our ambassadors, et cetera, protect the Secretary of State when in Washington, D.C. We have IT specialists, obviously, who go to college for computer science-related fields or budget analysts, accountants, et cetera. So we have those people and specialists. We also have a number of medical doctors who okay. are also Foreign Service officers because in our larger embassies, we may have a medical unit that actually has a physician there to treat the officers and the family members at the particular post. We also, and I want to just say that the State Department, if you can think about it, for any of your listeners who are interested in doing anything with international affairs, there is a job for you at the State Department. We employ people who are PhD marine biologists, um, mm -hmm. like I said, medical doctors in infectious diseases, if you're talking about yeah. doing anything on international health care, preventing infectious diseases like COVID, et cetera. Any type of field you can think of, if you have an interest in doing anything international, there is a way to fit into the State Department. So a lot of times people think, oh, I should go get a political science degree. A lot of people in the State Department do have political science degrees, but that's mm -hmm. not the only path. As you know, I went to business school undergrad right. and, and I got my MBA like you did as well. Right. So there is not one set path into joining the Foreign Service. We have a lot okay. of lawyers. Actually, in my Foreign Service orientation class, we had a former executive at a large airline. Right. We had former, like I said, law partners. We have people who came straight out of undergrad. Wow. Um, and you were a consultant, so correct? I started off as a management consultant. Yes. My story actually starts when I was nine years old. So let me talk about like, wow. so why, why I decided to join the Foreign Service. Obviously, when I was nine, I had no idea what the State Department was. But <laughs> my dad was in the Air Force, and we were posted in the Philippines. And I remember that my mom, when we were there, started this foundation basically to do like community service work. And so we were up in Bataan, Philippines at a Laotian refugee camp. And I remember when I was nine years old and my mom was working with other people there trying to, trying to donate in-kind donations, et cetera, um, mm -hmm. to, the, to these refugees. I was there just to play soccer because I was a huge soccer player when I was, when I was young. And so I just wanted to play soccer with all these um, orphan children. And I just remember it was at that moment when I was playing soccer with these kids and they were barefoot and they didn't have parents. And I just remember they were still so happy, but they had nothing. And I remember on the drive home, I asked my mom, you know, I was a fourth grader. I said, mom, why is it that these children, you know, are here in a different country and they don't have parents and how is this possible? And so I knew from that moment that I wanted to have a career where I could help other people because I know, you know, I knew at the time that I was fortunate to have two loving parents and be born into a household and be born in a country that offers um, opportunities that a lot of people around the world don't have. Mm -hmm. So I knew that I wanted to do something that was going to be able to help other people. So in undergrad, when we were at UT together, I interned at the State Department. And actually, for anyone who's listening who's maybe in college and is considering a career in foreign affairs or a career anywhere, I would highly, highly recommend uh, starting off with an internship. An internship is the best way to get in the door and to see if you actually like something without having to commit to it. So I did an internship at the time in what was then called the Office of Burma, Cambodia, Laos, Thailand, and Vietnam. 
in the East Asia Pacific Bureau. And I remember driving from Austin to Washington, D.C., took 26 hours. I had to stop overnight and ended up staying in a friend's house in D.C. for the three months. But it was literally one of the best experiences I ever had. I got to work with on congressional inquiries about demining programs in Cambodia. I got to do a lot of cool stuff as an intern, as a college intern. And so at that point, I said, yeah, you know, I want to work here. But it's a long process to get in. So afterwards, I went and finished my degree. I'd already, at that point, was coming up on a job offer uh, in the private sector. So as you mentioned, I was a management consultant also for five years. I, I took time off. I went and got my MBA in international finance and then went back in to management consulting. And I took the Foreign Service written test in 2005 and then joined the Foreign Service in 2007. So let me, uh, let me ask you process, this. Yeah. Mm. And let me ask you this. I, I can understand the international, inter, sorry, international finance. I understand that. Now, what about the management consulting? What made you go into management consulting? That's a good question. Um, mm. I think there are actually some similarities between the foreign service and management consulting in that mm. you work for limited periods of time on different issues. So okay. the management consulting, I did one mergers and acquisitions job for the merger of two large IT companies. So that took a lot of skills in leading a team, assessing how you can make processes more efficient. Uh, and I think that kind of translates to anything. My second time uh, joining a different management consulting company after my MBA, I actually was on a project at the State Department on the Iraq desk. So I started uh -huh. in 2004, right after we went into Iraq. And so I was leading a large team of economic advisors working on the economic reconstruction of Iraq after we went in. And so I was both working in D.C. and then I actually had an opportunity to spend six months in our embassy in Baghdad in the economic section, again, advising the Iraqi government on starting a mortgage market, on building low-income housing. These were things that didn't exist back then. Also working on the joint campaign plan with our four-star general then at the time, General Casey on the clear hole build strategy. So I was the lead for the economic section on the build part of the clear hole build strategy. So if you can remember, the army went into Sadr City, basically where a, a large number of uh, insurgents and terrorists were, were located. And the idea was to clear out the space and then to hold it and then to build the essential services like sanitation systems and roads, you know, electricity put in electricity, et cetera. So I was the lead for that portion of it. And that was as management consultant. So it was during my time as a management consultant working at the State Department and working side by side with Foreign Service colleagues that I said, yeah, I want to do this full time. So yeah. that's why I decided to take the Foreign Service written test. And I mentioned it was a two-year process and I can talk about the process to join. And then I, I eventually joined the Foreign Service in uh, March, 2007. Okay. And so, yeah, let's talk about that, the written test and the process to get in. But before you do that, a lot of stuff I didn't even know at all about how far it goes back about issuing patents and being in charge of Mint in the census. I knew none of that. So that that's pretty cool to, to know. Now, you mentioned the five career tracks, the five different career tracks and how you're a generalist. Now, being a specialist and a generalist, can you just want to make sure I understand this. You can be a specialist and a generalist in each of those different five career tracks. No. So the, the five career tracks that I mentioned are for foreign yeah. service generalists. So I'm a generalist. So okay, I can got move, it. I can move among 
those five, well, what we call them cones. So okay. for instance, I, like I said, I've been in, in a little bit over 13 years. I'm currently serving in my fourth cone. My position in Beijing okay. is in public diplomacy, but I'm an economic coned officer. So before you actually even take the foreign service written exam, you have to designate what tr career track, what cone you want to go into if right. you're called up to join the foreign service. And then for the majority of your career, you do jobs in that cone, in that specialty. But you can move around within the five. Okay. Now the and you're choosing the... Really and okay. Okay. Just to make sure, you, you chose the economic affairs cone? I, I chose the economic career track, yeah. So I'm an economic okay. cone. Yeah. Got it. All right. It makes sense with the MBA and the international finance backgrounds. Now, so let's talk about you're getting in, you're, you did your management consulting, you you have this written test and you have the, the two-year period, a background test and, and everything else that goes along with it. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So at the time, the State Department was offering two written tests a year. So it was April and sometime in the fall. I think this year they're offering three tests. So the idea is that we offer these written tests at all of our embassies and consulates overseas and at a number of locations across the United States. So I actually had, I had been in Washington, D.C. because I was already working at the State Department on the Iraq desk, as I mentioned um, mm -hmm. at the time. So I took it in D.C. But I want to say that when I took the exam, uh, and it's basically like an SAT almost. Um, now it's all online. But when I did it, it was all Scantron, you know, with pencils. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> and so I took the test and... Uh, I want to say that there were 14,000 people who took the test that year, and it's free, so it's open to anyone. Anyone can take the exam. Okay. Um, and I want to say by the time I actually got in, because there are a number of uh, steps that you have to go through, um, it was about a 2% acceptance rate. So there are 44 wow. people in foreign service class, and I want to say that there were four classes. I want to say there were four classes in 2007, and there were 44 people in my class. So. You take the Foreign Service written test. Um, you find out several months later whether you've passed. And at that point, at that time, then you were invited to take the oral exam. Nowadays, um, I want to say a few months, a few, a few years after I joined, they instituted uh, an additional step where you submit your resume. And so then people at the board examiners then look at your resume to see if you have the skill sets that they need in the State Department. Okay. But at the time, at the time they didn't have that step. So I got invited to oral assessment. The oral assessment is only held in Washington D.C. and it's an all-day thing. So you have a number of people come together and then they put you into teams and they put you through certain scenarios throughout the day. You write a memo um, on some kind of management issue. So they test all the different skill sets that uh, all the skills that you'll need in order to be an effective and successful foreign service officer. You know, for instance, they may ask you questions like almost like a choose your own adventure type of question. They may right. say, OK, for instance, the embassy is, you know, terrorists have just scaled the wall of the embassy. What do you do? And they say, right. okay, this is the that I would take, depending on what your position is. OK, well, your communications lines have just uh, gone down and something, you know, somebody's attacking something over here. What do you do next? And so they just want to test um, your, your thinking. Not, right. Right. How not, quickly you can focus really, on your feet, how, how well you keep yourself composed under pressure, et cetera. So that's one example. And I mentioned there's a memo portion and, and there are other portions too. And at the end of that assessment, you find out your score. And if your score is above the threshold, um, 
for your particular cone that you selected. Mm -hmm. And there are enough seats that are available um, in order for you to take a job and be offered a position in the foreign service, then um, you get put on what's called a register. And then you go through the security back, uh, the security check and the health check, and those take a while. And if you right. clear both of those in order to be uh, given a top secret security clearance and yeah. in the, 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 the health check, you have to be deemed worldwide available because for us, we have to be able to serve in any post anywhere in the world. And then at that point, you put on a register and the higher your score is on the oral assessment, the more likely it is that you'll be asked to join the foreign service. So then I joined in March, 2007 and yeah, and I've never looked back. That is great. Wow. So, so you go through this, all the extensive, I'm guessing extensive or lengthy background check. And now once you're in, you talk about all the different countries that you're having to go to, all the different languages, all the different cultures, all the different people. One, I think that's fascinating. And I want to talk to you about that and, and kind of your experiences with that. But two, I'm guessing there has to be a lot of continuing education with what you sure. do as well. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So when we first start as baby diplomats, we start mm -hmm. off in a class called A100. So I mentioned that okay. that's your orientation class. So when I came in, there were 44 of us in the fighting 133rd. That's what we call ourselves. So we were the okay. 133rd <laughs> class of the Foreign Service. And at the time, A100 was six weeks long. So you, you sit with the same group of people. And it's not just sitting in one location. I mean, you, you meet a, a number of people within the interagency. They come and talk to the class, a number of high-level people at the State Department. We go off and, and do leadership training at other places, et cetera. And then after you finish that six weeks of orientation, you come upon what's called Flag Day. So after your first week, there's a big list of all the jobs in all of the locations that mm. – basically that matches the number of people in the class. So each person is going to get assigned to one of these places. Right. And so you're lobbying each other. Oh, I really like to go here. Or I really like to do this, et cetera. And there are career development officers who then all sit together and decide who's going to go where. And so on flag day, which is towards the end of your orientation class, you get called up by name and then you get presented literally a little flag of the place that you're going. And that's, oh. and that depending on what job you're going to and what's, location you're going to, that then determines yeah. what training you go through afterwards. So for consular officers, they'll go through consular training. For political officers, economic officers, they'll go through political economic trade craft. If it's a country that or a posting that requires you to have the language and you don't already have that language. And a lot of us then test, we take language tests before we actually come in so that you can get a certain score that then translates into you being able to get posted in a certain country without having to go through language training if you can already prove that you have the requisite language. So right. for instance, if you're going to a country where they speak Arabic, you will go through one year of Arabic training as a entry-level officer, as a right. mid-level officer. So the State Department does an excellent job, I would argue the best language instruction of anyone mm. anywhere. So yeah, they do a good job of preparing us. Like you said, throughout your career, because we do place, I think, a premium on training and making sure we know how to do our job. Yeah. There's periodic leadership training that we have to take, different functional training for different jobs. We take a bunch of different refresher courses, et cetera, foreign affairs, counterterrorism training, et cetera. So there's a lot of continuing education, as you mentioned. That's great. So always learning. Now, how many languages do you speak? Uh, three. 
Okay, great. All right. And now, can you talk a little bit about the just the experiences that you've had going sure. to all these different countries and the just different customs you've seen? So this is this is the more interesting part of the presentation. So <laughs> the first part was like, how do you get in? Now I can actually talk about. So what do I do? So I can, like, what do, I do? So yeah. I can give kind of just like a snippet of the things that I've done because I mentioned that I've served in four cones and there is no typical day. There is no day that is like any other day. So I can only talk about okay. some of the things I've done. But I will say that anyone who joins the Foreign Service, their experiences are never exactly the same as someone else's. Because when you're posted in a country in that job at that point in history, it will be different than another person who's posted in the exact same position maybe five years later because history changes, right? It's constantly, constantly happening. So it depends on what happens at the time. So, for instance, I'll just give you kind of like a snippet of the things that I've done. So... I've interviewed over 20,000 foreigners for visas to visit the United States. I've repatriated destitute, stranded Americans, distributed aid to earthquake victims, improved coordination to safely return American hostages. I've negotiated UN resolutions that prevented dangerous countries from accessing nuclear bomb-making material. I've helped remove trade barriers to U.S. meat and dairy exports. I've organized numerous visits of U.S. and foreign government officials, including the President of the United States. I've interviewed and selected foreign Fulbright Exchange program scholars, and I've crafted the U.S. response in real time to a number of crises. So this is a very small snippet of the things that I've done. But like I said, I mean, you talk to anybody in the Foreign Service and they can talk about so many things that are maybe some sometimes similar to this as far as yep. issuing visas to foreigners, because as soon as we join, typically within your first or second tour or maybe both, you are expected to do consular work. So we're the ones on the front lines issuing visas, interviewing every foreigner, unless they're an official, interviewing every foreigner that wants to come visit the United States. That will actually get me into probably my most memorable moment, one of my most memorable moments in the Foreign Service. I'm actually getting goosebumps just thinking about it. So I can talk about probably one of the, the proudest moments that I've had in the Foreign Service was during my first tour, I was in Islamabad, Pakistan. Mm-hmm. And I was on the visa line. And at the time, this was in 2007, and the embassy in Islamabad was issuing all of the visas for all of Pakistan and all of Afghanistan. The only visas we were issuing in Kabul at the time were to officials who didn't need to come in for interviews. And if you can remember, 2007, this was the height of the, our U.S. Right. You know, in Afghanistan. So the war was raging on there. And uh, I remember sitting at the, the visa window and... This young woman comes up and I'm looking at her documentation, her paperwork, and she had gotten a full ride to Harvard. She had a full scholarship to Harvard. And uh, in talking to her, her English was impeccable. And she came Mm. from a family no one had ever gone to university in her family, and and especially no women. And I just remember like looking at her and hearing her story and knowing that, especially the Afghan applicants, had yep. to cross into Pakistan over the mountains by foot. It took them three days to get there. So I knew that this young girl had crossed over on foot for three days just to come interview for her visa oh, to go to the United country. States. Wow. And I mean, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. And I was like so proud to be the one person who could say welcome to the United States. I was so happy to give her her visa. So mm. just saying that 
you know, oftentimes foreign service officers say, oh, I don't want to, you know, some people may think it's not glamorous to issue visas, but I can tell you the most interesting stories come from working on consular issues. Yeah, and that's, I will say, that's still probably one of the proudest moments because I knew that she was going to go back to her country after she finished her degree and and really do something good. Well, that's amazing. That just, cool. yeah, that's just a great story. And it's amazing thinking about you at nine years old, at seeing what you saw and knowing that you wanted to make a change. Look at yourself now and the impact you're making across the world with some of the things that you're able to tell me. That is truly amazing. Thank you. Um, it, it, yeah. it feels like it is a blessing. It is a blessing every day to, mm. um, to do what I do. Now, let's talk about skills and characteristics and what you do. So I would think, and like you said, everyone's different and things change. But in general, I would think that you really need to be passionate about public service and just wanting to represent the U.S. around the world. Outside of that, though, what skill sets and, and characteristics would you say are most important to be successful in your line of business? I think you hit on it. The Foreign Service is looking for individuals dedicated to public service. Also, those with good command of the English language, both orally and written form. Obviously, as diplomats, we, um, we do a lot of communication. And we're just looking for motivated individuals with sound judgment and leadership abilities, who I mentioned, who can retain their composure in times of great stress or even dire situations like in a military coup or a major environmental disaster, someone who can keep a, a level head and, right. and think clearly and lead other people. That's okay. it. I mean, this does not have a, a specific requirement for even a college degree. I will right. say that the majority of people in the Foreign Service do have an advanced degree, but it's not a requirement. Okay. All right. And that kind of gets me to the next question. And I know you said that the different paths and your path, you went to business school, you're a consultant. So you can come straight out of undergrad, business school, mm -hmm. whatever it is, you can find a path if you want right. in foreign right. affairs. Okay. Okay. Anything now, that if you want to live overseas, if you want to represent the United States overseas, then there is a path for you in the foreign service. Got it. All right. Great. Now, can you talk about what you love about what you do? Touched on it a little bit, but can you talk about it? Sure. Um, well, like I said, I mean, it's it's an honor every an honor and a privilege every day to represent the United States overseas. You know, recently I feel like there's you know you can see some in the media talk about the exceptionalism of the United States are we declining? But if you think about it, the United States is the oldest democracy in the world. When we were founded as a country. It was founded on the vision that all, all men, all men and women are created equal, that we were not having to take orders from some king or some emperor, that we were able to decide our own destiny, our own fate. And our inalienable rights are enshrined in the Constitution. And even though, you know, no country is without its problems, the United States is still that beacon of hope. And you can see this why you have so many people all around the world wanting to come to the United States. And we have a great story to tell. I mean, you know, we're the great of the great experiments that we continue to to work on to make ourselves a more perfect country. And to me, it is a privilege to be able to represent that to other countries and to other peoples and especially all the good that we do for other countries, because we understand as America that in order to be able to keep our citizens safe, and, and make America prosperous, other countries also need to be safe and prosperous. Right. Now, countries that are stable and don't give their space to 
terrorist groups and countries that are prosperous become better trading partners for the United States, better markets for us to sell our products, better places where we can buy inputs for our own manufacturing. And so with this approach, that's how we've approached foreign affairs as, as far back as I can recall. So we help other countries when they have natural disasters, or we help them become more prosperous. We help them root out their disease. So we have people all over the world working on, you know, collaborating on preventing infectious diseases. I remember in, in Thailand when I was posted there in 2010, it was our Centers for Disease Control officials posted at our embassy who worked with the Thai Ministry of Health to devise um, one of the first treatments for HIV. I mean, it's this kind of collaboration that happens, you know, through through the State Department platform, because it is the chief of mission. Our ambassadors overseas are typically of the State Department. And and, and so they're the, the, pre- the president's representative in country and all of the other agencies that are underneath um, our ambassador basically report to them. Okay. So it's just it's amazing to be able to work overseas and, and to work with colleagues from all these different agencies just to be doing good for the American people. Right. And working with the host governments on on shared priorities. Yep, no, so that's, that's great. I love, yeah, I love being able to to know that I get up every morning doing a job that matters for me. Definitely, yes, it definitely does matter. A difference maker. Now, uh, what about on the flip side, the challenges? What type of challenges uh, are out there for you? What kind of keeps you up at night? Um. I'd say the biggest challenge is probably the moving constantly. It can be difficult on your family life. Mm. Um, as you know, that I hadn't mentioned, but of the different ways that you could join the State Department, I only talked about the Foreign Service aspect of it. We also have civil service officers who mainly work domestically. So there are subject matter experts in D.C., and they typically work in a bureau or on a country or a functional mm. issue for many years. So they're based in D.C. So if any of your listeners want to join the foreign serv- or join the State Department and work on these issues, but don't necessarily want to live in far-flung corners of the globe, right. they can still work in D.C. on these issues at State Department headquarters. The hiring authority is slightly different. They could go to USA Jobs and, and look at that. But yeah, I'd say the most difficult part of it is the moving around, so the toll mm-hmm. that it takes on your family. So I was posted in Pakistan twice, and the second mm-hmm. time. My son was two years old and Pakistan is one of our unaccompanied or Islamabad is one of our unaccompanied posts. So my son was not able to come with me. So he had to stay with my mom for the whole year that I was posted a second time there. And it was hard. You know, I video chatted with him about every day, but it was hard being away from him. So I think that's probably the the biggest challenge is, um, is moving. Also, as I mentioned, living in a lot of these smaller countries or less developed countries, we also face a greater risk of illness or injury oh, or yeah. death. So in these countries with inadequate healthcare systems or infrastructure, we're also more exposed to violence and unrest or warfare. You know, we have a plaque in the lobby have you- the State Department, um, in Washington, D.C. with the 250 names of officers who have died or been killed in, while serving the United States abroad. And it's a stark reminder mm-hmm. that, that um, yeah, it's, we, we face challenges, we face dangers. Have you been in any uh, scary situations? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I have been All right, I'll leave it. Um, shot at. I've taken wow. mortar fire, rocket fire. I've gotten incredibly ill, almost went blind in my left eye. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting career. 
But I mean, well, again, I wouldn't change the world. Right. Right. <laughs> well, all right. So the constant moving and some of the issues or things that come along with being in some of these countries that aren't as developed. Dangers out there and the illness and violence. All right. So you mentioned the that great story about the Afghani girl who was able to get a visa and come to Harvard with a full scholarship. Are there any other memorable moments that stick out to you? Oh, there are lots. I'll just say some of them I can't talk about on a podcast. Okay. Yeah, right. No. <laughs> Yeah, I understand that. All right. <laughs> but that was a great story about the girl going to Harvard. All right. So we're at the end of this podcast. I'm going to ask you some quick hitter, fun questions. But before I do that, is there anything additional that you would like to uh, discuss or anything you think I might have left off asking you? Um, I just want to say that for any of your listeners who are interested in a career at the State Department, as I mentioned, there are many ways to join the State Department. I mm-hmm. mentioned that I'm a Foreign Service Officer Generalist, but there are a lot of tracks. So you could join, um, as I mentioned, as an intern. We have fellows. We have contractors who work there in different capacities. Civil Service, Foreign Service Specialist, Foreign Service Generalist. If anyone who's listening is interested the best way to find out more about careers at the State Department is to go to careers.state.gov. And as well, for anyone who is still in college, either in undergrad or graduate school, et cetera, we have what are called diplomats in residence at 16 universities across the United States. And so if you go to careers.state.gov, you can can find which diplomat in residence represents the area where you live. You can get in contact with them. They're there to recruit. They're there to answer questions. Sometimes they actually even lecture at the universities where they cover. So for the Texas region, our diplomat residence is at the University of Texas at Austin at the LBJ school. And so you can find her contact information online. And these are actual, she's a foreign service specialist. So she's a diplomatic security agent, the one we have in Texas right now. But these are tours. So we do tours of duty, just like the military does tours of duty. So the tours are typically two years for these diplomats and residents. And so foreign service officers or generalists, uh, sorry, foreign service officer generalists or specialists can bid on these jobs. So they change over. And so it's it's interesting to talk to them, to hear about their own career paths and, and what they've done. So if anyone is interested in talking, you know, please reach out. Okay. And the fellowship program, can you talk a little bit about that or how sure. it works? Yeah. Sure. I'm glad that you mentioned this. So We have a number of fellowships um, at the State Department, and a couple of them are actually geared towards attracting more underserved populations, more minorities. So we have the Pickering Fellowship and the Wrangell Fellowship. And both of these fellowships, basically when you're an undergraduate or just recently graduated and going on to graduate school, the fellowships pay for your graduate education. Um, You just need to have been accepted into a graduate program and have, I think, at least a 3.2 GPA, I think, from undergraduate. But they will pay for your graduate school studies. And then both summer between your first and second year and then the summer after that, you're basically doing internships at the State Department. And then I think the second one is at an embassy or consulate overseas. Mm. And it's a pathway in order to join the Foreign Service. So if you are accepted into one of these fellowships, I believe that you don't take the Foreign Service written test. You automatically are considered having passed the written test and you go on to the next portion and just take the orals. And it's it's a pathway to get more, like I said, more underserved communities into the State Department, into the Foreign Service, so that the Foreign Service can look more like the people we're representing. That's great. Okay. And great program. Thank you. All right. So let's get to these quick hitter questions. Okay. So first question. Red. 
What's your favorite sports team? Oh, that's an easy one. Houston <laughs> Longhorns, the Texas Longhorns. All right. <laughs> Specifically football, but any sport. All right. Sounds good. <laughs> favorite movie or show? Hmm. Favorite movie is probably Gladiator. Okay. Followed closely by The Sound of Music. <laughs> I know that's Wow, Gladiator funny. by the... All right. <laughs> yeah, I know. I've seen The Sound of Music with my son at least two dozen times. <laughs> Good mix. All right. So, so I love Homeland. Are there any, are there any shows, any shows about foreign affairs or uh, diplomacy that you thought hit it on the head, did their homework, and did a good job of portraying what really goes on? You know, have you ever seen Madam Secretary? No, I haven't. I heard it was good, but I have not. I'd say um, Madam Secretary. Some of the uh, some of the episodes are pretty realistic. Okay. Like some of I'll those scenarios could really actually happen. And the way we handle them are, are pretty realistic. All right. All right. Favorite musical artist or group? Oh, my gosh. Can we have a top five? I don't have a favorite. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> top top five. <laughs> or I could say, I actually, I'll say I like any song with a beat because I love to dance. Okay. I'll just leave it at that. And you, I don't want to go back to Homeland. You kind of laughed when I when I mentioned Homeland, so I'm guessing that's not realistic. <laughs> I know. It's funny <laughs> when Homeland was on the air, people would say that I resembled Claire Danes, and I said, "Isn't she crazy though?" <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's a compliment. Oh. And I remember when she was in Pakistan, and I just I couldn't watch it. I was like, that, "No, we would never do that." It, the embassy doesn't look like that. No, no. <laughs> okay, so not realistic at all. <laughs> I'd say it's less realistic. Okay. Huh. Favorite vacation spot? Bangkok or any beach in Thailand. Yeah. But I'm a bit biased because my mom is Right. Bad. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and last, favorite food or drink? Fresh seafood. Oh. For the same reason. <laughs> well, Lisa... I want to thank you again for coming on and doing a podcast. I think this is great. And I love all that you do. love that you're protecting the U.S. interests around the world and just basically representing this country around the world. And so love what you do. Keep doing it. And thank you. Thank you. It's my honor and my pleasure. And can you say that website one more time where people can go to learn, get more information? It's careers.state.gov. Perfect. All right. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, RJ. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye. Thank you, everyone. If you have any comments or questions or would like to be on the podcast, please reach out to me on Instagram at Rodolfo Cooper. Thank you. Bye.